Please turn with me to Psalm 18, verse 121. 119, 121 to 128 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 121. The word of Christ says this. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good, and do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fell with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness, and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding, that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, as your humble servants. And Lord, we ask that you would deal with us according to your loving kindness, and that, Lord, you would teach us your statutes today. Lord, give us understanding, Lord, that we may know your testimonies. Lord, that we might walk in the path of the upright, and Lord, hate every false way. So, Lord, give us understanding today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the Bible uses various metaphors to describe our relationship to God. The church is said to be the bride of Christ. In other places, we are called children of God. In John chapter 10, we are said to be his sheep, and he is our good shepherd. Here, the passage before us today uses one such metaphor and describes the relationship of the redeemed to God. The prophet David refers to himself as a servant, or more properly, as a slave of the Lord. He used to be a slave to sin, but now he is a slave of God, and he wants to obey God. He wants to know the will of God and wants God to come to his aid and deliver him from all of his oppressors. Right? God is our master and we are his slaves. We must understand this aspect of our relationship to God. We do not belong to ourselves. We do not belong to any other. We do not belong to Satan, to sin, or to the world. We belong to God. We are his slaves, and as his slaves, we should be chiefly concerned with doing his will. This should be what occupies our mind all the time. Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6 speaks of this slavery in what it, we used to be and now what we are today in Christ. Romans 6, 15 to 23. Romans 6, 15 says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... You have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness." Therefore, what benefit 
were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There he refers to our old life as the life of slavery to sin. We were slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. But now we've been set free from slavery of sin so that we might belong to a new master, so that we might be enslaved to God and become slaves of righteousness. This is what we must understand. All men are slaves. The wicked are slaves to sin, but the righteous are slaves to God. But that's the only two options. You're either a slave of sin or you are a slave of God. The prophet David, being a redeemed man, he knows that he is a slave of God, and therefore he wants to obey him from his heart. He wants to be a faithful, wise slave to his master. And how can the slave be faithful if he does not know the will of his master? Right? Doesn't the slave need to know the master's will in order to offer to him duty and obedience? And where is the will discovered for the slaves of God? It's in the holy word of God. In the word of God, this is why he loves the word of God so much. He loves his master. He wants nothing more than to please his master. And the Bible teaches him how to do so. And this is why he loves the word of God. And this should be our attitude as well. Psalm 119, 121 says, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Here, the prophet David declares what he knows to be true of his life. He has done justice and righteousness. Uh, now, of course, he doesn't mean that he is a perfect man, but he's talking about his current predicament, his current scenario, the one that is resulting in oppressors. These oppressors have risen up against him, and he's stating to God what is true. He has not committed a sin that would be the reason for them to do what they're doing to him. He is being oppressed, not for some sin he's committed, but because he's devoted to justice and righteousness. He's done justice and righteousness, and as a result, they are oppressing him unjustly. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 16, speaks of this scenario. Where the righteous suffer, not because of sin but because of righteousness. 1 Peter 4, 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. If someone is oppressed because he's a murderer, because he's a thief, because he's an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, then he's getting what he deserves, right? He's getting the justice of God because of his sin. And in Psalm chapter 7, 1 to 5, there the prophet says that if I have done something worthy of this, 
then let it come, right? Let me get what I deserve. Or as the apostle says in Acts 25, 11, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. If I've committed some sin, some crime that is deserving of death, the apostle Paul says, then I don't refuse to die. Then let me be executed justly for the crime that I have committed. But when they're doing justice and righteousness and the oppressors are coming upon them, doing evil to them, then this is not right. This is not good. Doing justice and righteousness should not lead to oppression. Yet because of wicked men, it often does. And when it does, it is an injustice. It is a grave injustice. Whenever the righteous are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, it occurs in this present world. That's what he's bringing to the attention of God. He's stating his case before the Lord, but for the one who judges justly to his master. And in doing this, he's not boasting. He's simply bringing to the Lord, the righteous judge, the facts of the situation. I have done justice and righteousness. I'm trying to live a godly life. I want to do your will. And these wicked men won't leave me alone. They keep harassing me. They keep oppressing me. They keep pestering me all the time. So please protect me from them. Do not leave me to their hands. An example of this would be the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, he was doing justice and righteousness, both in his personal life and also for the kingdom as a servant, as one of the servants of the king. He wasn't promoting evil in the land. He was promoting that which was good. And it says concerning him in Daniel chapter 6 that he was a man of prayer and that he was kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. Is that evil to pray three times a day? Is it evil to give thanks to God three times a day? Is it a crime that is worthy of death? Of course not. It's justice and righteousness. But what happened to Daniel in that scenario? He wasn't doing anything that deserved to be thrown into a den of lions. He was doing good. He was praying and giving thanks to his God, yet his oppressors sought to have him executed, and not merely executed, but in a miserable fashion, right? To be thrown and eaten alive by these lions. This is what they wanted done to him, all because he was doing justice and righteousness. This is the same as the prophet David. In this particular circumstance, his oppressors are falsely charging him. He's obeying God. He's living a life of faith. He's doing justice and righteousness, and his enemies are persecuting him for the sake of righteousness. So he prays to God for God to deliver him from their hands. Verse 122, be surety for your servant, for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. Here he says, be surety for your servant, for good. A surety is like a cosigner on some transaction. If the primary party cannot pay the debt, then the surety, the cosigner, will come to their aid and relieve their debt and take it upon themselves. Well, the prophet David, being a slave of Christ, is asking his master to come to his aid, asking his master to be his surety. He is unable to deliver himself. He can't deal with these people, with his oppressors. 
He cannot handle the situation on his own. It is too much for him. The burden is too great for him to bear. The debt is too heavy for him, but it is no problem for his master. His shoulders are too small and they are too weak, but his master, he has very strong, very broad shoulders and he is able to easily lift this burden for him. He is able to dispatch with great ease all of his oppressors. So he's asking God to be his surety. Come to my aid. Come help me, deliver me from them because I know that I am weak, but I know that you are strong. I know that I can't do it, but I know that you are able to do all things. And if you will come to my aid, then you will give me strength and then I can never fail and stumble and fall. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27 to 31. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is what the prophet David knows. A man of faith understands his own weakness. He understands that he is feeble. He knows that he has no strength. He is a finite man. He is not able to overcome on his own, so he depends on his master for deliverance. And here, he wants this deliverance. He wants them to be surety for his good. For my good, but not for their good. For my good against my enemies. Do good to me, and then give them what they deserve. This is as it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7. It says there, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Afflict those who afflict you. Give us relief. Give them affliction. Do it for my good and do it against them. And then he says, do not let the arrogant oppress me. Here, his oppressors he describes as arrogant men. Arrogant men. Arrogant because they do not depend upon God's wisdom. If they were humble men, if they were godly men, if they were honestly seeking the truth, then they wouldn't be oppressing Him. But rather they'd be walking with Him, alongside of Him, arm in arm with Him. But because they are arrogant men who do not depend on God's wisdom, they rely on their own flesh, their own mind, their own wisdom their own carnal, worldly, demonic wisdom. And they do not live for the praise of men, but for their own praise. They love to be flattered by other men. And in this present sinful world, one does not gain the praise of men by espousing the wisdom of God, but rather by espousing the wisdom of this world. But this is arrogance. To assert your own wisdom, your own thoughts, in contradiction to the thoughts of God, to the very word and wisdom of God. John 5, says, How can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. And then Luke 16, 15 says, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. They love worldly wisdom, and that's why they hate Him. That's why they oppress Him. But what they love, God hates. And what God loves, they hate. But in the end, who's going to win that battle? Not them, but God. And that's what he knows. And that's why he wants God to deliver him to be his surety against his oppressors. 123. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. He has an unquenchable thirst for the word of God. He longs to meditate on the salvation of God found in the righteous word of God. Isn't salvation, isn't this the greatest thing that God can do for us? Is to give us salvation from our sin so that we don't go to hell for all eternity? So that we're delivered from the judgment of God? This is what God gives to his people, to the redeemed. He delivers them from their sins. Well, he wants to think about this. He wants to meditate about the salvation that God has given him. His greatest desire is to be continually, constantly meditating upon the salvation of God found in the righteous word of God. And he would do this all day, every day, if his body would allow him, if his body was not beset with weakness. He says, my eyes fail me. His eyes fail him. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. If he could, he would stay up all night long meditating on the word of God, musing about the salvation of God. But his eyes will not let him. His eyes fail him. Because eventually, what do we have to do? Even as determined as a man might be, eventually sleep overcomes us. Our eyes are not able to stay open. We have to sleep eventually. His eyes give way to sleep, but his desire is to meditate all night upon the salvation found in God's word. Do we have this attitude? Is this attitude in us? Is this desire in us? Do we have this longing for the word of God? Can we say as the prophet David, my eyes fail me, my eyes fail me, right? I want to, this is what I desire to do, but my eyes fail with longing for your salvation? Or are we content with meager rations? There are many people who spend little to no time in the Bible. As the week goes on, as the days go on, they spend little to no time in the Word of God. They have no desire to read it, no desire to memorize it, no desire to meditate on it, no desire to talk about it and to think about it. They like to talk about money. They like to think about their career, their hobbies, their interests, the things that they like to do, but they have little to no time to think about, to talk about, to meditate on the Word of God. But that's not the prophet David. The prophet David, he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day in Psalm 119, 97. I love your law, says David. I meditate on it all day long, and I would meditate on it all night long if my eyes didn't fail me. 
But this is what my desire is, to constantly be meditating on your salvation and your righteous word. This is the attitude that we need to have. This is what we need to pray for, that God would give us this desire, and then we need to seek it with all of our heart, right? Seek it by reading the word of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see, and then we will see and we'll want more, and we'll want more and more and more, and our desire for the word of God will grow and grow and grow. 124, deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. He wants God to deal with him according to his loving kindness, which is according to his grace and mercy. Even though he is a slave in the household of God, and typically the master right, would have no regard for his lowly slaves. Yet the Lord our God is not like most masters. He is a good and loving master, one who treats his slaves with loving kindness. And here, how does he want God to show loving kindness to him? Well, notice what he says. Teach me your statutes. This is the mercy of God. When God opens our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from his law. We need the mercy of God in order to understand the word of God. It takes a miracle of God, the supernatural power of God, for us to understand his word. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It says in John 10, 27. The sheep hear the voice of Christ. Christ loves them, and they follow Christ. The goats cannot hear the word of Christ. Christ does not love them. Christ does not know them. And they will not follow Christ. And by nature, what are we all? By nature, we are all goats. But it is only the sheep who hear his voice. And it is only the sheep who follow him. And what does it take for a goat to become a sheep? It takes the miracle of God. It takes the mercy of God. It takes the supernatural power of God to transform us by his mighty power from being goats to being sheep so that we can hear his voice and so that we can follow him so that we might understand truly, spiritually, inwardly the word of God. A natural man cannot, by his own wisdom, his own strength, his own power, understand the word of God to his salvation. It takes the work of the Spirit of God for us to come to this. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. This is what the prophet David knows and understands, and this is why he's praying the way that he does. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural man, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. You must understand them spiritually. You must be a spiritual man in order to understand spiritual 
truths. And this explains why so many people hear the Word of God, but they do not accept the Word of God. They do not understand the Word of God. They hear it audibly, they hear it physically, but they don't hear it spiritually. They have blinders over their eyes. They have a stony heart that is incapable of hearing the Word of God. Even though they may encounter it, they don't have any clarity. They don't have any conviction. They have no faith. It does not produce obedience in them. They do not get it. They see it and they say, this is foolishness. And they want nothing to do with it. And this is because they're not slaves of Christ. They do not possess the Holy Spirit of God who must be our teacher. The Bible is a spiritual book that can only be understood by a spiritual people. Well, the prophet David, he is a spiritual man. He is a redeemed man. And by God's loving kindness, he has been saved. His eyes have been opened to understand the gospel, and now he wants God to continue showing him that loving kindness throughout the course of his life so that he has more understanding. Because it's not just like we need the Spirit at our conversion. We need the Spirit, we need God to teach us for the remainder of our life, each and every day. The only way we can come to greater clarity, greater understanding, greater obedience in the things of God is by the work of the Spirit, by the mercy of God. So that mercy, which resulted in his conversion, he wants God to continue giving him that mercy that will result in his sanctification so that he understands more and more the word of God. He receives more insight, more clarity, more conviction regarding God's statutes. This is what he wants from God, and this is what we should pray as well. 125. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Here he states, I am your servant. I am your slave. This thought must be at the forefront of our mind each and every day. If this thought is directing our life, then we're not going to sin against God. We're going to do the will of God. We're going to live in the fear of the Lord. We're going to be examining our life and making sure that what we're saying and what we're doing conforms to the word of God. I am the slave of Christ. I am not my own master. Christ is my master, and I am bound to do his will. Everything we are and everything we have belongs to Christ. A slave has no rights of his own. He has no time for himself. Everything he has is devoted to his master. He is bound to do the bidding of his master all day, every day. This is how we are. My life is not my own. My time is not my own. My possessions are not my own. My family is not my own. All that I have belongs to him. And what does a faithful and wise slave want? What does he concern himself with other than doing the will of his master? And this is our duty, is it not? Luke 17, 10. So you too, when you have done all the things which you are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Right? Why are you looking for praise? Why are you looking for someone to pat you on the back? Isn't it the duty of the slave to do the will of his master? So when you've done everything that you're commanded to do, 
The attitude you should have is to say, I'm an unworthy slave. I don't even deserve to be a slave of Christ. I've only done what is expected of me. What is my duty? We are twice-owned slaves of God. Slaves by creation, slaves by redemption. We have a twofold reason to do all that we're commanded to do by our Creator and by our Redeemer. But how can we know His will? How can we do His will, right, if we're not reading the Word of God? We have to know the will so that we can do the will. And how can we know the will unless we are taught the will? This is what David wants. He is the slave of God. He wants to do God's will, but he needs to know it. And he can't come to it on his own. He needs God to teach him. Give me understanding, he says, that I may know your testimonies. I want to be a faithful, wise slave, but this I can only do if I know your will. But I don't have the ability to understand your will on my own. So teach me. Please teach me your will. Give me the insight necessary that I might accurately understand your will so that I can obey it. That's what I want to do. This is what the prophet is saying. Understand your will so that I can obey your will. Understanding for the sake of obedience. Not understanding for the sake of intellectual curiosity, intellectual stimulation. Understanding for the sake of obedience to God. This is the attitude of a faithful and wise slave. 126. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Here he says, it is time for the Lord to act. Act in judgment against the wicked who are breaking the law of God. This he's saying for his own comfort, for his own consolation during his suffering. He's not accusing God of sin. He's not saying that God is indifferent to sin. He's not saying that God is a derelict of his duty, that God is taking a nap, that God is indifferent and he's not paying attention to what is going on. In no way, shape, or form is he questioning God's ways in the world, questioning God's wisdom or God's timing of events. He's simply looking at the world around him, seeing all of the sin, all of the wickedness that is taking place, and then stating for his own comfort that it is time for God to act. God is soon going to act on this. He's going to do something about it. So I'm not going to go join those people. I'm going to continue living a righteous life and know that in due time, God's going to deal with all of this sin. God will bring every act into judgment. And God will bring judgment upon the world of the ungodly. As we become more acquainted with the will of God, which is, isn't that what he's saying all throughout this? He wants understanding. He wants to know the will. Teach me, right? Help me understand. Well, as a man becomes more acquainted with the will of God, as he gets more understanding of this will, then does he not at the same time get a greater understanding of sin? Doesn't it become more obvious to him, more plain? He sees it all around him. There is a direct correlation between the two. The more we understand and desire righteousness, the more aware we become that the world is filled with unrighteousness. We have a heightened awareness of the greatness of sin in the world. And when we see that they're breaking God's law, then we long more and more for God to do something about it, for God to act and to bring judgment on those who break his law. Notice here, he wants God to act. 
because they've broken the law of God. He's not concerned with petty personal grievances that he has against others or that others have against him. He's not concerned with slights against himself. Only when those slights are breaking the law of God. His chief concern is the glory of God. That God's law is being transgressed. That it is being broken into pieces day after day. On every street corner, he sees that men are breaking the law of God. And this brings dishonor to his master. And as a righteous slave, he wants his master to be honored. He wants his master to receive what is his due, what he deserves, and this is not what God deserves. He wants to keep the law of God, but all around him he sees the wicked breaking the law of God. Don't they do this? The wicked excuse sin, they justify sin, they accommodate sin, they promote sin. And what is sin except lawlessness, breaking the law of God? As it says in 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law of God. Even many who claim to be Christians love to break the law of God. They break the law in pieces under a false notion of so-called Christian liberty, false Christian liberty, and then use it to justify lawlessness. He sees this happening all around him, in the world, in the nominal church, and he wants God to do something about it. Pour out your judgment on those who break your law. Give them what they deserve. This is what he prays to God. Acts 17, 30 and 31. We can be sure that God will do this in due time. Acts 17, 30 and 31 says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is what the prophet David knows and understands This is what he desires, for God to act in judgment, in righteousness against those who break his law. 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Knowing of the day of judgment, knowing that God is about to act upon the ungodly, the prophet David expresses his love for God's commandments. Because it is the word of God that gives him the knowledge necessary to prepare himself for the day of judgment. So that God doesn't act on him the way he's going to act upon the ungodly. And because of this, he loves the word of God more than gold. Even more than fine gold. There's not enough gold in all the world that would cause him to turn away from the word of God. For the gold of this world at most will benefit us when? Only in this life. Only in this life. At best. And also, don't we know that many times those who increase in gold also increase in hardships. That there are new hardships, new anxieties that come with an increase in wealth. It says such in Ecclesiastes 5, 11 and 12. 
It says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage of their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich does not allow him to sleep. He has a large estate. He has many mouths to feed. He has many servants to care for. And if they have a bad crop, if the wealth doesn't come in, then who's going to feed all these people? Who's going to provide for all these people? There are many people who come with their handouts whenever you have money. But a working man, he sleeps well at night, whether he eats a lot or a little, because he doesn't have to worry about all these things. He just gets up, goes to work, and then he eats, and then that's the end of it. But say, for the sake of argument, say a man increases in wealth, and he has nothing but ease, comfort, safety in this life. In the best possible scenario, his gold will benefit him in this life only. And he will take not one ounce of that gold with him into the life to come. Naked we come into this world, and naked we depart from this world. We bring nothing with us into the world, and we take nothing with us when we leave this world. In terms of possessions. And this is why he says, the word of God is more to be desired than fine gold. Because the word of God is dealing with eternal issues. The word of God grants us access to a heavenly city where the streets are made of what? The streets are made of gold. That's how common gold is in the kingdom of God. The Bible speaks a lot about wealth, about money, about gold, about possessions, because this is a stumbling block for many, many people. There are many people who will be sunk down to hell with big bags of money. The money weighs them down and it sinks them all the way down to hell. Many people will not enter the kingdom of God because of their love of money. Wasn't this true of the rich young ruler who came to Christ and yet he would not part with his money? He would rather part with Christ, walk away from Christ, than to have to give up his money. Now, this isn't always the case. There are examples in the Bible, even the prophet David is one such example, of righteous men who had great wealth, but did not abuse their wealth, but used it for the glory of God and for the good of their neighbor. They did not abuse it, but they used it in the proper way. Then there are examples in the Bible of wicked men who were wealthy, who abused their wealth to their own ruin and destruction, such as the rich young ruler. David was a wealthy man, but he did not abuse his wealth. He used it. He loved God and used his wealth for the glory of God. And if he had to choose between the word of God and all the gold in the world, it'll be an easy choice for him. Every single day, every day of the year, he would choose the word of God over gold, even over fine gold. The finest gold is not more precious to him than the word of God. This is the way that we must be as well. 128. Therefore, I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. He knows that God cannot lie. He knows that God only speaks the truth. He knows that the Bible is the holy word of God. And because he loves the word of God, 
then he esteems right all. Notice that, all. He doesn't say some. He says all of your precepts concerning everything. On every single topic, he considers God's word to be right, true, just, concerning everything. There is not a single subject addressed in the Bible where the Bible is wrong. The Bible is always correct. On every single topic it addresses. We, this must be the first principle. This is the very foundation of our faith. We must have this conviction that the word of God is true without any mixture of error. And every single subject addressed in the Bible, what the Bible says is true, and anyone who contradicts it is a liar and is spewing out falsehood. Whatever the Bible talks about, whether that be God, whether that be the nature of man, whether that be salvation, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the existence of the devil, the day of judgment, the life to come, heaven, hell, the creation and existence of the world, science, history, morality, ethics, virtue, what the Bible says about the institution of marriage, what the Bible says about male and female, that there are only two sexes, and that a man should marry a woman, not another man, and a woman shouldn't marry a woman, a man shouldn't marry a tree, he shouldn't marry a robot, he shouldn't marry himself, but he should only marry a woman. What the Bible says about sexuality, right? What it is, how it's to be practiced in righteousness, what the Bible says about children, how we should view them as a blessing from God, and how we should raise them in the fear of the Lord, what the Bible says about work, how we are to work, what it is, and how it should be done. The Bible addresses all of these topics and many, many more. And whatever the Bible teaches concerning all of these topics and all the rest of the topics in the Bible, the Bible is always correct. It is always true and right on every single topic it addresses. This is his conviction. This must be our conviction. We cannot disagree with the Bible on any topic. And then what is the correlating truth to this? The correlating conviction that comes with this conviction. I hate every false way. I love everything that is true, and I hate everything that is false. If the Bible is true, then anything that contradicts the Bible is false. It is a false way that comes from the devil and we must detest it, we must hate it, we must reject it with all of our might. Not compromise with it, not find ways to accommodate it, not hedge here and there, no. Hate it, hate it, don't want nothing to do with it. Again, notice here the universal language. The universal language, both regarding the word of God and regarding the false way. I esteem right all your precepts, all of them, not some, and I hate every false way. Every false way. Not most false ways. Not 9 out of 10 false ways. Not 99% of the false ways. I hate every single false way. Deuteronomy chapter 4. If we have this conviction, and we're searching the Scriptures... To understand the word of God with humility. 
then we're, we are going to be safe. We're going to be on the straight and narrow. We will have safety and security as we go through this life because we're not going to turn to the right or to the left. We're going to walk in the straight ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. Do not add to it, he says. Do not take away from it. And why would a person add to the Bible? Only if he thinks the Bible is not sufficient. And why would he take away from the Bible? Only if he believes the Bible is wrong, the Bible is not true, and that he has a better way. That's arrogance for a man to do that. And what will God do to those arrogant people but destroy them in the lake of fire? 12, Deuteronomy 12, 32. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Whatever I command you, everything I command you, not 99%, but everything I command you, you shall be careful to do it. Careful, he says. He doesn't say on the essential things that I command you, you have to be careful, but the non-essential things, it doesn't matter. No, everything is essential according to the word of God. And we must be careful to do all of the word of God, not adding to it and not taking away from it. Also, Revelation 22. This is, Deuteronomy is at the beginning of the Bible, written by the prophet Moses, the first writing prophet. And Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And in the very last book of the Bible, one of the very last things said in the Bible, Revelation 22, 18, and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them... God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Is this a, a salvation issue according to Revelation 22, 18 and 19? Well, what does it mean to have God add all the plagues written in the book upon you? And what does it mean to have God take away your right, your part from the tree of life in the holy city, but to go to hell forever. If we add to, if we take away from any of the word of God, we cannot reject any part of the Bible. We must avoid these two great sins. These are twin sisters, twin sins that are hideous, right? They are ugly and they must be detestable to us. Adding to the Bible and taking away from the Bible. Adding to it such as the scribes and Pharisees, who added their traditions of men to the Bible. Then they say, oh, these traditions are good. These traditions are good. They, they don't contradict the Bible. They say these traditions, they're actually in harmony with the Bible. They help us follow the Bible, right? They, they benefit us. But if they're so beneficial, then why didn't God tell you that? Why didn't God put it in the Bible if it's so beneficial? These are lies from the devil, because the traditions of men, they actually contradict the Bible. And they overthrow what the Bible teaches. The traditions of men promote a false gospel. It promotes false love. They promote false grace, false evangelism, false piety. This is what they do. They'll say things like, well, evolution doesn't contradict the Genesis 1 and 2 
narrative of creation, actually it helps us understand it. It gives us more clarity and understanding of what took place in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You take something outside of the Bible, foreign to the Bible, and you add it to the Bible to help you understand the Bible. Now, does that make any sense at all? Is that the way that we're supposed to do things? Aren't we supposed to look at everything through the lens of the Bible? We're supposed to take the Bible and then judge everything according to the Bible, but they're taking something outside of the Bible that you'd have no idea of from the Bible, and then they're inserting it into it. And then what actually happens to the teaching, to the doctrine of creationism? The whole thing is gone away with. It subverts and overthrows everything that is taught in Genesis 1 and 2. And then they do it in other ways. Well, they'll say, well, yes, the Bible doesn't teach youth groups, but, you know, it doesn't say we can't do that. And actually, youth groups help us. It helps us evangelize the kids. It helps us reach out to them, right? It helps us, it promotes it in that way. But is that what happens? No, it doesn't promote it. It actually undermines what's going on in the church because you end up bringing in a bunch of trouble, a bunch of sin, and it mixes in, and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, again, if there's a youth out there who's interested in the things of God and wants to study the Bible, then sure, fine, great. Then that person should be brought, and we teach them the Bible. But doing these types of things, having all the activities, all the fun, all the games, in order to get people to come, all in the name of evangelism. But where is that taught in the Bible? Where in the Bible did anyone ever evangelize in that way? Nowhere. It's a tradition invented by men that they interject and then it actually undermines everything that they say that it's accomplishing. It doesn't do any good at all. There are many examples that we could provide of people adding to the Bible, adding human traditions, human ideas to the Bible. And it actually undermines every time all the things that they say it promotes. Then there is the other side. Taking away, taking away. Licentious men do this. Under false liberty, they take away from the teaching of the Bible. Liberty not rightly understood. Yes, the Bible does teach liberty in Christ, but true Christian liberty is liberty from sin to righteousness, to live a godly life. Freedom from slavery to sin to, to keep the commandments of God and to walk in the pathway of, rightness, of uprightness. That's the freedom that's being taught in Psalm 119. And I shall walk at liberty, he says in Psalm 119.45. I shall walk at liberty, he says. And what is that liberty but obedience to the commandment of God? But they say Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Christian freedom. Freedom in Christ. But not rightly interpreted. And they use freedom to take away from the Bible to cut out parts of the Bible. Well, we don't have to practice this commandment because that was only for Israel. And we're not Israel. We're the church. So it's not for us today. Or that was in the Old Testament. And now we live in the New Testament era. Therefore, we don't have to keep that anymore. We don't have to practice this because, you know, it's cultural. It was a cultural thing for this specific culture and time. So they had to follow it. But we live in a different culture, so we don't have to follow it. Or they'll say, well, there are some things in the Bible that are essential and then other things that are non-essential. The essential things we have to follow, but that which is non-essential, those things that aren't gospel issues, these aren't issues of salvation. Well, we can have different opinions on that. You can have yours, I can have mine. We have different interpretations and we all just need to agree to disagree. 
But what are you doing if you're promoting that? Are you not taking away from the Bible? You're removing parts of the Bible, or you're saying that parts of the Bible are secondary. But where does the Bible teach that? Where does the Bible teach it? It teaches it nowhere. They'll do this with male headship. We talked about this when we did our study on head coverings. Isn't that the argument? It's cultural. It's cultural. So they use the cultural argument to take away what the Bible actually teaches. What about the sin of sodomy? Aren't they doing that today? Well, yes, the Bible condemns it, but that was a different time, a different culture. Now we have a new culture. Women pastors. The Lord's Day. Tithing. All of these commandments in the Bible have been eradicated, have been taken away in one way or another by these types of people. They take away the Bible. And then they use these crafty, subtle, so-called sophisticated arguments in order to do so, in order to trap people and to trick them into thinking that they are faithful interpreters of the Bible. But we can't do this. We cannot practice these twin sins, adding to or taking away from the Bible. But we must be convinced of what the Bible says from beginning to end. And our desire should always be to understand the Bible correctly so that we can obey it. It is a grievous sin, a blasphemous sin to add to or take away from the Bible. Because when we do that, we are saying, whether we say it audibly or not, we are wiser than God. We are more righteous than God. We know better than God. And if God would have consulted me before he wrote the Bible, then it would be a better book. Can a person have that attitude, that thought, that thought and be pleasing in the sight of God? What is God going to do to that person but destroy him for all eternity? It is a deadly, dangerous sin that leads to the lake of fire. That's why the Bible warns us so many times. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. It warns us sternly to not do those things. We cannot practice those sins, and we cannot follow those who practice them either. But rather, let us hold fast to what is true. Esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. And then let us also hate every false way. Turning away from it and saying, Lord, we want to walk in your straight ways, the straight ways of the Lord, turning neither to the left nor to the right, but we want to know your will. So please, Father, teach us your will so that we can walk according to your commandments. That's the attitude that we should have, and let's pray to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your holy word, Lord, that has been given to us Lord, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, everything we need for life and godliness is found in your word. And Lord, every single word has been given to us for our good, for our benefit. From our good heavenly Father, who is truth, who is righteousness, who is justice. Lord, who only does what is good and right. So, Lord, we know that your word, Lord, it is perfect. There is no improvement that is needed. There's nothing that is lacking that we need to add to it, nor is there anything found in your word that we need to take away. But it is absolutely perfect on every single topic it addresses. Every 
First, Lord, every word is perfect without any mixture of error. Lord, may this conviction, Lord, may it be deep within our hearts. And Lord, may it be with us in growing. Lord, so that we esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. And that, Lord, we hate everything that contradicts the Bible. Lord, give us discernment and wisdom so that we don't fall prey to deceitful men. We know that false teachers are in the world today. We know that there are many false teachers that have gone out into the world. And they do not announce to us their intentions. They do not come proclaiming themselves to be wolves. But they say that they are sheep. They say that they are of us. They say that they are true teachers of the Bible. And yet, Lord, they use these crafty, subtle arguments to add to your word and to take away from it. And Lord, may we be able to spot that and see it and hate it, Lord, and want nothing to do with it and rather expose it for what it truly is. Lord, we want to walk in the straight paths of the Lord, turning neither to the right nor to the left, but, Lord, doing those things that are pleasing to you. And so we ask, Father, that you teach us, that you guide us into all truth. Lord, our spirit is willing, but our flesh, Lord, is so weak. And, Lord, we need you to come to our aid, and we need you to help us, Lord, to deliver us from deceitful men, and, Lord, to even deliver us from our own flesh, which craves lies instead of truth. Lord, may you put to death the flesh within us. And Lord, we pray that we would walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Lord, we are your slaves. Lord, you have created us and you have redeemed us. And our life belongs to you. So Lord, may we offer our life daily. Lord, as a living sacrifice to you, holy and acceptable to you. And Lord, we pray that you transform us by the renewing of our mind. Lord, so that by testing we may discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Lord, what you have commanded us, we pray, Lord, that you would give it to us. Lord, that you would grant it. Lord, so that we might be faithful to you in all things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.